Father, I thank you that everyone that's here is chosen of you, Lord. Chosen to hear. Chosen to have their life refreshed and reminded of just the amazing way you bless us and you watch over us. And Lord, I pray for those who aren't here, maybe listening online, that they too will just have that flow of life-giving energy that lets them know that you love them and that you're with them and encourages them to, to live your way. God, I ask you to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Robert's doing a series um, uh, as I'm leaving, and, and um, he's going to continue it on this year about Jesus' favorite topic, which was the kingdom of God. He was always talking about the kingdom of God, and of course, he's the king. He's the king of the kingdom of God with his Father, God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But I want to talk on one of the other main things that Jesus spoke about, the real top, probably in the top three things that Jesus spoke about, and it's finance, it's money. And I'm really excited about the understanding and level of engagement with what the Word says about fine, uh, with you guys and myself in, in the kingdom of God. We've, we've seen breakthrough after breakthrough financially as a church, just a small church, and yet that because of... Um, Understanding what God says, breakthrough has come to many, many families. I love the scripture that was up there. I read it a couple of times just to make sure. But David was saying, I'm so wrapped when I see people being blessed. I'm so wrapped when I see people being blessed. I'm so wrapped when I see other people being blessed. He wasn't just talking about his own blessing. He was a kingdom-minded person. He was, he was excited when he saw the people around him. Being blessed. And it's a big part of what, what um, the teaching of the Bible is all about. You know, Jesus spoke four times about money than he spoke about faith. And yet faith is an incredibly important thing. 16 of the 38 parables are about money. And you have to ask yourself, why did he focus in on money so much? Why is it so important? And really there's two scriptural reasons Firstly, it's because money is not neutral. It is a potential rival for the center of our heart. And if we don't watch it, we will find that money will sit on the center of our heart and not Jesus Christ. And so he spoke a lot about it on how to dethrone what is actually a spirit in the world that causes people, causes, can cause any one of us to begin to love money. And when we love money, money begins to control us. And Jesus didn't want that to happen for people. He wanted people to be, be able to use money as a tool, not controlled by it, not, not running after it and loving it. This is what he said. No one can serve two masters, for either he or she will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And mammon was put on a similar kind of level, not the same, but as God. In other words, there's a spiritual power behind money that if we don't dethrone it, it will take God's place in our hearts. And we've all seen people who've, who live their life for more money, more money, because money seems to be able to, if you have enough of it, it can make life a whole lot easier. It's not the source of life, but it pretends that it is. And we've all seen people chasing money, 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 and God doesn't want it to be that way. God has to be first. 
And that's really what my sermon is all about today. It's reminding us as Christians that God has to be first. You know, the Bible says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and then he will give everything else to us as well. And secondly, he spoke a lot about it so mammon could be dethroned, but secondly, so that we could actually live blessed lives. But like David, it's not so that we can be blessed. I'm not talking about name it and claim it. I don't believe that that's right at all. But God wants us to live blessed lives. Blessed so that others can be blessed. And our blessing is kind of a byproduct, if you like, of, of what is actually going on. God blesses Christians so that the kingdom of God can be resourced and so that other people can be helped. And it's amazing when you get to the stage where there's enough surplus in your life and the blessing of God is flowing into your life to be able to start making a difference in other people's lives. Mark and Karen, I was, I was visiting Mark this week, and um, they were telling me, or their daughter was there, and she was telling me of this amazing blessing that's happening in her life with regards to a house that she and another couple are buying in Wellington. Amazing house. I saw the pictures of it. But they have a heart and a vision to take in solo mums. And you want to know why God's blessing her in that way? Because it's not just for her it's, and, and her husband. It's so that solo mums who need to be able to be somewhere have an opportunity to be in a place that's like a hotel. Talk to them. It's a, it's a really, really cool story. You know, the fruit of financial blessing takes time. To find financial freedom takes time. It's not like a credit card. I need some money, so you put your card in and God gives money back. It's not like that at all. It takes time. In fact, it can take a lifetime. It can certainly take decades to develop in our life. And I am really glad personally that my brother said to me when I was 15 years of age, okay, now you've gotten saved, John. This is about two weeks after I got saved. He said, now that you've given your life to Jesus Christ, God expects that you'll tithe. So this is what you need to do. You need to tithe and give 10% of every, all the money that comes into to your uh, wallet um, to the Lord. And I started doing that when I was 15 years of age. And so now I've got 50 years almost, 49 points, something or other, years of tithing and the blessing. And, and I'm getting to that stage that David was at where he could look at his life and he could say, you know, I was once young, but now I'm old and um, I have never seen the righteous not blessed by God. God looks after us. But it's the fruit of almost 50 years of sowing into the kingdom of God. And God's blessing comes back, of course. You know, he, my brother said to me, he said, when you do this, God will bless you. So don't worry about losing or anything else. You'll get far more back than what you give. And I have to say that that's exactly how it is. You know, there's two main schools of thought about um, giving in the New Testament. One is tithing, and that's giving 10% of our finance to the Lord. And Jesus endorsed it. Can I say that again? Say it with me. Jesus endorsed tithing. Let's say it together. Jesus endorsed tithing. Have a look at the scripture. What sorrows await you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees and hypocrites? For you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens. They were tithing everything. But you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe. Yes, Jesus said. 
But do not neglect the more, the more important things. So tithing's not a big deal. It's just something we should get going in our lives. But actually, the really important things are much bigger and broader and, and more expansive than that, such as those three, justice, mercy, and faith. Now, the other school of thought in the New of New Testament thinking is that we are to be, just be generous, that tithing is gone, but we are to be a, live a generous lifestyle. And you have to make your own mind up as to whether you feel tithing is what the New Testament says or just generosity is what it says. People will often say we're not under law anymore. But if you want to make generosity your guideline, you must make care, be very careful that you don't make it an excuse to give less. Because then you're starting to come under the thinking of mammon. And Mammon's always saying, ah, just keep it to yourself and just be careful with it and maybe God doesn't need this much. You've got to be really careful of that. Because Jesus takes things from the Old Testament and he raises the standard. He ups the ante in the New Testament. I'll remind you of a couple taken from Matthew chapter 5. You've heard it said that people long ago, uh, to the people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, Jesus said, speaking into the New Testament Christians, he said, I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Anyone think that's a higher standard? Anyone ever been angry, really angry with your brother, your sister? Or anyone who says raka to your brother or your sister? Raka means idiot. Anyone guilty? <laughs> or fool? You deserve, Jesus said, you're on the edge of deserving hell. The standard rises hugely. And, and morality? You've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone, and he's speaking to men here, any man who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, he raises the standard. So applying that understanding to generosity, the New Testament, um, New Testament generosity is to choose to give more than 10%, not less than 10%. Does that make sense? Do you see the logic? My belief is that tithing is endorsed by Jesus as, and is something that endures right throughout Old and New Testament, to give 10%, with a freedom to be able to give a whole lot more. And there have been periods of our lives for most of us as we were building this, refurbishing this, and building the new things out there, where we gave way more than 10%. And it was actually a really cool time. And if you're not in a situation where you can afford to give 10%, then Please don't be under condemnation about this. You can start wherever you are. You can give 2% and 4%. But if you will give to the Lord, He will bless you back. And if you will seek to live a more simple lifestyle, you will be able to give 10% in the years ahead. It will grow around your life. So in saying that, I want to just remind you, and, and this is something I've taught on a lot over the years, and that is that the Bible teaches more to good money management than just tithing, okay? We won't get ahead if that's all we do is simply tithe. Teachers, we should manage our money. It's called a budget, a budget. We should manage our money. It teaches that we should save our money, and we'd go on the 10-10-80 principle is something that I've taught many times. We should learn to invest 
money, so that money is making money. And we should simplify our lifestyle so that we're not spending everything that there is. I noticed with my kids when they were um, in their teenage years and they had just a little bit of money, it was enough. And when they got a little bit more money, it was enough, but not quite. And when they got a fair bit of money, it was enough, but not quite more. Because the desire and the where we're, what we're looking at and wanting just increases. So we've got to, got to have a, a simplified life as well to be able to get ahead. But it's worth it. And then it teaches give to the Lord. Tithe to the Lord. Give that to Him. So today I'm wanting to remind us of the biblical reasons why we give. See, God must be first. Not mammon. We are never to allow mammon to take the push God off the throne of our heart and sit there. And we need to know how to receive blessings so that abundance... Now, it's all relative. Some people's abundance is a whole lot more. I know what it was like as a 15-year-old to find abundance, where God would just bless me with little things. But as, as time went on, those little things became cars, and various other things that I've spoken about over the years as God's blessing has just come in. Wow, I never expected that. But it's 50 years of sowing. God reserves the right to be first, and there's the New Zealand version of it. If you picture your heart with a throne in the center of it, Jesus wants to sit on it, and only him. But other things strive to sit on the center of our heart, don't they? The center of our life. Sports can do that. Relationships can do that. You, can, you and I can do it ourselves. We want to be the boss. We want to be the master. But Jesus wants to sit on, our, on, on the throne. But the biggest contender, we often don't realize it at the time, is money. And this is why Jesus was talking about it often. Don't let mammon sit on that seat. Because... It will become your master. God says we have to dethrone money from being on the center of our heart as often as it comes up in our lives. And we do this by giving the first portion of, of all of our finance to the Lord. And then the money will just be a tool to use and not your boss. And because our Father sees us, He will generously bless your life. How many can honestly say, I have, have been blessed by God over many seasons of my life. I am blessed because of the money that I've given to God. Thank you. That's just so cool to know. I, I know many people could be sharing this, telling their stories just as well as me. Now, in the Old Testament, it was an agrarian economy, right? So the way to increase came to a person's life was by crops that they grew or animals that they had that gave birth to other animals or by children being born into the family. All of those ways would bring increase to a person's life. So right from the beginning, God said that the giving had to be from the first of the crops and the first of the fruits and the firstborn of the animals and the firstborn of any family belonged to him. They were his that he claimed. So let's have a look at this principle of the firstborn. In Exodus 13, 2, it says, Consecrate to me every firstborn male. The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me. Whether a man, in other words, a baby, those of you that are mums, 
have a think of it about this is your child God's claiming here, or an animal. Sixteen times in the Old Testament, God says, the firstborn is mine. And the way God claims it is, if it's an animal, then that animal had to be sacrificed. Or if it was a human, it had to be redeemed. It had to be brought back by taking a good animal, and God specified which animals were the ones to take, and then killing that animal. So an animal was paying the price in each time. But it was costly for parents to have a firstborn. There was a cost. Exodus 13 and verses 11 to 13 says, After the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and gives it to you, as he promised on oath to you and your forefathers, you are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey, but if you do not redeem it, break the donkey's neck. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. Now, here's the context. God is going to give the people of Israel massive increase. They're going to in, in, um, inherit, they're going to get houses that they never built, farms that they never uh, had any legal right to um, in the past. They're going to get the equipment on the farm. They're going to get donkeys. They're going to get horses. They're going to get carts. They're going to get fields, some of which would be planted and just about to, to um, uh, be upon them. And, and that is the setting where God says, now I want you to make sure that the first fruits come back to me or the firstborn of any, anything in your family comes back to me. They were entering the promised land. And it's a huge opportunity for mammon to get, in, get into everyone's heart. Can you see it? And so God wanted to make sure that they just didn't become materialistic. Oh, I got a house for free. And you got two. Ah, well, I'd like two myself, you know? As they're all getting divided up and given to them, as they were coming out of the desert and receiving all this inheritance that was there. And materialism could have just gone rampant in everyone's hearts at that time. So God says, ah, let's just dethrone that right at the beginning. Every, every firstborn animal has to be sacrificed, and every firstborn human. An animal has to be, of, of, you have to have the animal and it costs you, but you have to redeem that to get that son or daughter, son's life back. And so it was costly for the farmer or the family that had just had a baby. But it was the antidote to materialism because people were acknowledging that all the increase in their life was not because they worked hard, was not because they looked great or were in a part of a special tribe, but all of it came from God himself. And people were acknowledging, okay, God, you've just blessed me hugely. I'm going to acknowledge that by giving back to you the firsts. So God is setting himself up. So he, even in a, in a place where his people are in this affluent time, will still be number one, and mammon won't be sitting on people's hearts. And the second thing it will do is that it will keep them living by faith even though there's affluence all around them. You know, crops, animals being born, to give the very first to God, 
How do you know that the tree will keep producing, the land will keep, the, the, the wheat will keep rising, the grapes will keep doing their thing when you've given God the first? It's like, I mean, we all know what it's like because God says give, give the tithe first of all. And we're going, ah, God, could we wait until I see if there's more? And then I'll tithe. You have to live by faith. God looks for faith. And that's what he was doing to his people. He was making sure mammon was not finding a place in people's hearts so they would start to be controlled by the wealth that they, they carried. And he was making sure that they would constantly have to, to live by faith and that their walk would be genuine. Let, let me um, take you to the principle of the first fruits. It's exactly the same as it was with the firstborn. All the crops and all the fruits that came onto their, that, that was part of their land, they had to give the first portion of that to, the God, to God. It says, The first of the first fruits of your land you shall bring unto the house of the Lord your God. I like Fijoas. Those And they've just been, you know, on the tree. And, and the first ones, having to take them before eating, sampling any of it. Here it is, God. I sure hope those other ones ripen. Can you see? It's, it's, this is the real reality of what it's like. The first day of harvest, bring the offering to the house of the Lord. And for the same um, two reasons, um, that... Mammon would, God would be first. Mammon wouldn't get into a place in our hearts that it's, or their hearts that it wasn't supposed to. And the people would have to keep living by faith. And I want you to notice in that scripture that the first fruit offering was to be brought to the house of God, the church, in our setting. Just like the tithe today is. So the firstborn had to be redeemed if it was a baby had to be sacrificed if it was an animal. The first of the crops had to be given to God, not, not eaten ourselves, but given to him in, in the Old Testament. And then there's the principle of the tithe. And it's exactly the same with any financial increase that came into people's lives. Leviticus 27 and verse 30 says, A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy unto him. So he's, God's kind of up the standard a little bit more in this, and he said, actually, the, the tithe is a holy thing. We're not to consume it. We're not to eat it. We're not to hold it to ourselves. He considers it holy. I read an account that was done a number of years ago in 1998 of American Christians and it came through Christianity Today, which was a magazine that was um, well, reasonably well-researched and published. And it said that in 1998, um, an estimate of what Christians in the U.S. gave in the way of tithes was 1.8%. So when you think about that, and that, that has happened in the Bible times right through to today. People find it really hard. Have we had that picture of, of um, the baptism? <laughs> I 
Martin Luther pointed this out. He said, the la- he, he, Martin Luther was quoted as saying, the last thing of a person to get baptized is their wallet. Still true today. And that's why I'm so grateful that I just believed my brother when I was 15. And I just started tithing. I remember once a, a Christian came up to me in the church I was in and, um, and, and said, I, I know I'm going to be a millionaire. And when I get to be a millionaire, I'll start tithing. It's much easier when, you know, the average wage is $1.80, which it was when in 1970-something or other, and I got 72 when I got saved, and you're tithing a tenth of what you earn on $1.80 than to wait until you're a millionaire and actually think that mammon who's sitting on his heart will let him do that. But this is what we struggle with. And God says this in Malachi. He said, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you've turned aside from my statutes and you've not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? In other words, where do we go astray from you, God? This was a religious people. This was a people who came to church and did the sacrifice thing and, 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 uh, and, and did all the ordinances that were necessary that, uh, to, to be do, doing. But God says... Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? And God says, in your tithes and your contributions, your offerings. And because of that, you're under a curse. For you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. He doesn't just say it's one family or one little group. He says, everybody's doing this. It's like the American Christians in 1998. Many would have been tithing. It means some were giving absolutely nothing for only 1.8% to be an estimated average of what right across the millions of Christians in the U.S. were giving. He says, you're under a curse. You're cursed with a curse for you're robbing me and the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, and see if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need in your life. It's the only place in the Bible that I know of where God says, test me. And if you, if you give, test me to see whether I won't Bless you back, bless you back, bless you back. Because he will. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that he will not destroy the fruits of your, of your soil and your vine in the field will not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. You see, it's the, our giving of our tithes and offerings, it's our giving of our money that shows whether God is number one or not. It's the real test. It's not our worship. It's not how strongly and how fervently and passionately we sing when we come on a Sunday. It's not our words that we say, but it's our wallet. And God wants his church resourced. And notice the incredible provision that God offers to any Christian who believes him in this. The windows of heaven will be opened and I will rebuke the devourer in another place, it says you put money in, but your, money, your pockets have holes in them. And it just dribbles out. 
So all three principles say the same thing. God requires us to dethrone the power of money by giving the first portion of all the increase in our lives to Him. The firstborn, the first fruits, and the tithe all say the same thing. And the result is that God will get to sit on the throne of our hearts and we will live by faith. I want to just, as I draw towards a close, point something out here that you might not have realized. The first portion sacrificed redeems the rest. Let's just say they were kind of like $20 coins, 10 of them. Which one is the tithe? Is it the first? Or is it like that picture kind of shows that it's the last? We wait until we see how much we've got and then we tithe. Or should it be the other way that that tithe one is actually the first one that's there? Exodus 13 tells us the first animal is the tithe, given before any other animals might arrive. Exodus 23 tells us the first of the crops is the tithe, given before anything else has, has, has arrived or has ripened. Um, what's the effect of giving that first portion? I want to suggest to you that that portion that we give by faith redeems the rest. That giving by faith in the very first portion is actually the trigger that activates God's blessing over the rest of our money. Proverbs chapter 3 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. But notice what it said. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits. Giving it first triggers and opens up all the rest that God wants to do in that person's life. Romans eleven sixteen. If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. Now those to me are really fascinating words, and they're a clue to what happens with the first fruits as we give as a first fruits offering. It affects all the rest of the money. If the first is holy, the rest is holy. If the first, is first of our wealth is sacrificed to the Lord, then the rest becomes blessed. So when we're budgeting our money, and I hope that every year you're doing a, an annual budget, um, God wants us to be, have almost the very first thing that we put in our budget line. What are our expenses that we need to make sure that we're paying with the money that comes in? I want to suggest the very first thing you put in there is your tithe. Dethrones mammon and triggers off the blessing that God wants to bring over our lives. You know, many Christians are still haphazard in tithing and they wait to see at the, uh, in a week or in a month if they can afford to be able to give things to the Lord. And they, might, or they will be wondering um, why they never really see the blessing that God promises of the windows of heaven being opened up. I want to say Scripture teaches really clearly, don't withhold the tithe. Get it quickly into the storehouse. 
So as I draw to a close now, I want to take this principle and apply it to a story in the Bible that has probably perplexed you as it, as it has perplexed me. And it's the story of Cain and Abel. God accepted one offering and rejected the other one's offering. But both of them brought offerings. What was the difference that caused God to accept one and to reject another or to be sad with another one? Genesis chapter 4. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain grew very angry and his countenance fell. Can you see what it is? You can... Sort of, you don't have to yell it out, but you can signal if you can. Let me say it in another way. And when um, Cain got around to it, he brought an offering to God. Or when Cain saw that he had enough overflow and surplus, he brought an offering to God. But Abel, acting in faith, brought the firstborn of his flock. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering but he did not respect Cain and his offering. It's an amazing truth that took me ages to be able to figure out. Can I just wrap up now by, by just, um, with trepidation, just sharing with you? Because as I, as I said, um, I've had 50 years of giving to the Lord and trusting him. And God's blessing has been around Sandra and I amazingly over the years. Somehow when we got red zoned, and I also share it because I'm right at this, this final stage uh, with, the, with all of us and that we're retiring in, in about five weeks' time. But somehow when we got red zoned, um, everything was up in the air at that time. And we took a huge stretch and we bought a rental house in Auckland um, as well as buying in Islam uh, where we've lived. And we believed at that point God was speaking to us and prompting us to buy. And, and afterwards, um, I have asked with Sandra and kind of talked um, and saying, how did we ever, why did we ever buy a house in Auckland? You know, um, you might be agreeing with me. And, and just saying, how did we do that? How did that come about? But eight years ago, we bought a house in Auckland. And then we have saved and we have invested everything that we possibly could into that mortgage to get it down to a, a reasonable figure over that time. And at the, when we did it, can we just have a little look at it? It needs a lot of work, but um, this is a couple of the stories of it. There's another third story down, down below as well. And when, when we did it, we thought... Um, how can we do this? And Sandra prayed for me for a lot, for a whole year as my stress levels were, because I was investing, you see, we were investing. And my stress levels were incredibly high for about a year. But now, when we're retiring, and our kids live in Auckland, and um, we would like to return to family, and two of them are going to come and live with us, um, uh, with their spouses, and and we'll have two young children in the, in the family with us. 
That home is just an amazing provision of God. And we are just so grateful. And it's so clear looking back that it was God. And he, 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 knows, how to, he, he knows how to bless us beyond what we could ever imagine. But he requires us to walk in faith into it. It doesn't happen because we do one offering or we, we tithe for a little period of time. We're going, God, where is it all happening? But if we will trust him and we will put him first with the first fruits, God will look after us into the future. And he knows the future better than we actually do too. This is the inside of the house, just the, um, the lounge area. It's kind of a, it's a pole house somewhere, living in the trees, sort of looking down into the valley. And then... The next one as well, thanks. This is the beach that we're at. It's a harbour beach. But I love fishing. I, 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 I love um, swimming. I love paddleboarding. There's never any surf there, so I have to travel for surf. But God has given us beyond what we ever thought that we would be able to have. And it's because we've trusted him. And these questions are absolutely true. What God has done for one, he can do for another. And do we believe it? And does our belief actually follow on to action? I could name many of you around the church right now and just know that I could point you out and say, look at what God has done as they've honoured him. Look at what God has done here as you've honoured him. Look, look. And with trepidation, I've just shared our story because I know the generosity of your, your heart is, is um, towards us. And, and you, I want you to be encouraged just by us being able to say, this is our story. God's done it for us. He will do it for you.